police investigated Bob Crane's apartment, they found the star of the 60s TV hit, Hogan's Heroes, face down his own bloody sheets. The back of his head had been caved in with a blunt object. To make sure the job was done, the murderer had tied an electric cord around his neck. Police assumed the murder weapon was one of the camera tripod combos Bob set up in secret to film the woman he brought home. Not only were some of the women totally unaware they were being filmed, some didn't even know Bob was planning a three-way with them, which involved Bob's friend and camera operator, John Carpenter. Bob Crane's death was so shocking, so bizarre, it became the scandal of the 1970s. The murder of the title character from Hogan's Hero would eventually turn into a movie, five books, three major investigations, and countless articles and podcasts. If you follow any of these sources, you'll come to your own conclusion about who murdered Bob Crane, since the law never officially landed on a verdict. But if you look at Bob Crane's scandal with modern eyes, especially the days leading up to the murder, it takes on a new tragic light. Reading about Bob Crane is like reading about the death of a pioneer in addiction. Bob was on the cutting edge of every one of his vices. For one, video cameras by JVC and Panasonic had just barely evolved to be the self-contained cassette systems we're used to. Meaning, the amateur camera technology was so new, Bob had to have a camera specialist in-house to help him record homemade porn. I was ahead of his time for his diagnosis too. Sex addiction wasn't new, but the term itself, sex addiction, only emerged in the 1970s and would finally be added to the psych handbook, AKA the DSM, a full decade after Bob's death. And Scottsdale, where he died, was still a tiny budding town in Arizona. It was in the midst of exploding, growing over 600% between 1960 and the year of Bob's death. Everything about Bob Crane's murder was scandalous and tragic, but from a modern perspective, one might conclude that Bob's addictions were hypercharged by his cleverness. The things that made Bob an innovative entertainer also made him an engineer of his own vices, practically inventing porn addiction before anyone could call him out on it. That's part of what makes the creative mind so dangerous. It can be just as ingenious about getting its addictions met as it is with anything else requiring creative spark. You're listening to The Reengineered You. This is a podcast about self-empowerment and all the myths, lies, and misconceptions we tell ourselves. Then, we have science and history to bust those myths and re-engineer a better you. I'm your host, Todd Laments, the extrovert. And I'm the writer, researcher, and introvert, Joe Anthony, whose job it is to dig through the outer layer of no-da on the internet. Online shopping, porn, alcohol, nicotine, sugar, salt, fat, mobile games, microtransactions, casinos in our pockets, tweets in the air, bings, rings, chimes, the sound of gold coins pouring from a slot machine. These days, the whole world is engineered to give your brain what it wants, more dopamine. If you're an addict in the modern world, 
You're standing in an ocean of dopamine up to your waist, holding a bucket, trying to bail it out. Because everything from your car to your phone to your kitchen is designed by the smartest minds on the planet to do one thing, to keep you hooked. So that's what today's episode is all about. The brilliant engineering that goes into addiction and how we can recognize it. So we have three myths about science of addiction to get us started. Myth one, you can't trust an addict. The addict's brain is literally wired differently and reports that claim addiction is a disease just proves it. Myth two, there's no stopping an addict either. If they're deep in their dopamine disease, they'll find a way to get their fix, just like Bob Crane. Myth three, every addiction is unique. There's no such thing as a universal treatment for addictions in general, right? We're going to get to our miss, but first, I want to tell Joe why Bob Crane's death was so hard for Americans to wrap their heads around. Mr. Crane apparently was killed, according to the medical examiner's information, from a blow to the side of the head. And he was discovered about 2 o'clock this afternoon from an acquaintance of his. A blow from what? From a blunt instrument. We have not located to this time a blunt instrument. Crane's apartment has been cordoned off while police continue their investigation of the murder. Authorities say they have little to go on so far. No weapon, no suspect. Uh, last year, we had an episode about Stephen King and about alcoholism. And you and I kind of, in that episode, shared some stories about addiction. Um, looking back at that, looking at this episode and what we talk about with Bob Crane being basically an engineer of his own addiction, what were the weird, clever things you did to manage your addiction? And I, I've definitely got some for me. Um, the biggest one I did was I worked harder to earn more money so I can indulge in more of my vices. Okay. And then I went to extreme uh, <laughs> cover-ups <laughs> to hide <laughs> it. <laughs> okay. How about you? I, I think a, the double life aspect is a huge part of addiction. I mean, obviously, it's a huge part of what Bob Crane went through on the the public front he is this charismatic you know the the face of you know being the plucky um world war ii guy um my double life i was a master of scheduling like i would human resource myself and my addiction like i would be like okay if i start drinking now at like you know 8 p.m uh i would get x amount of sleep I could indulge this much and it, I would always overdo it. I would always wake up, you know, tired and hungover and groggy, but yeah, I, I, my cleverness went into how much can I get away with this show? We're talking about sex addiction, but this is talking about gambling, alcohol, drugs, um, control, you know, whatever addictions there are. I think the biggest misconception that the addict has and this is a, a big blind spot, as clever as they might be, they always think they're fooling everybody, and they're really not fooling anyone. Right. You just don't get confronted on it, so you think, aha, Joe doesn't know that I'm drunk. I think that because of the way humans are so good at spotting weirdness and uncanny valley, and we're so good at seeing a slight bit of crazy, 
like it's it's like catching a um, spider web in the corner of your eye. We are more put off by somebody who's hiding most of their addiction than we are by somebody who is living out in the open with it. So we are more weirded out by that, and thus we spot it easier when somebody is hiding it and they're almost doing a good job. Um, so we're, yeah, the, the topic of today is how creative people um, deal with addiction and why it hurts them so much, like why it is so easy for the creative mind to be addicted. Um, Bob Crane had a civil war that a lot of us won't have. And I compare it a lot to um, Bill Cosby. Bob Crane was a very handsome, clean-cut, likable person. And he was seen as this hero and good guy. So I would think that there would be a civil war in his heart and his head over being a total derelict at night and then (laughs) being Mr. Nice Guy during the day. Don't you think that after a while that would kill you slowly? That is a really good way to put it, especially since... He has spent years curating this, ans- this this image, like he is he has built himself into this handsome, clean cut, likable guy. So obviously, he knows enough about self presentation, self image, to take it hard when he realizes his addiction could bring that crumbling down. So, with his charmingness, what's what's your take on that? Do you do you think that? I mean, you or I become addicted in the modern age we go seek help it's not so bad nobody takes it as personally or as hard but bob crane like why is it so tough for him well for beginning it was a different time um family problems any kind of addiction especially a sex thing sex wasn't a thing that was talked about as commonly as it is now not in any way and i want to take you back to what he was he started out as a radio guy and he is a you know, model, handsome, talented, and he he would interview stars from all over the world. Bob Hope. I mean, he was he had a very established. It was the number two radio station in the Los Angeles market, which was the second biggest radio market in the country. That is crazy. Like, it, so think about it. Every starlet and star that came through Hollywood was on his show. He was the Joe Rogan show of his age, except funny and not uh, controversial. And he was probably a little more talented than Joe Rogan. He was a very good um, drummer. He was a, he was a musician. And Rogan's a, 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 what is he? He's a stand-up comedy? Yeah. yeah. But I don't find him particularly funny. <laughs> but yeah. I was going to say Larry King, but I think Joe Rogan's probably a little better. So he was a fun guy. He was a popular guy. His show had a lot of gimmicks. He made fun of his guests. He would tease them. And then he'd actually even make fun of his sponsors. So I said, you tell him. So he said, all right, I will. So the next day, this gentleman came on the show, and I cannot name him now for legal reasons. He's going to sue me because it's a true story. He came on the air the next day, a very high official at the post office, too. And he read the law. It says, don't mail dead flies. (laughs) And I didn't know that. And he made a big thing about them being diseased. And I said, well, now let me ask you something. What about if they boiled them first? (laughs) So he was just a fun guy. And then he got his big break. He got a call. We have a script for you. It's a prison war movie from World War II about uh, Nazi Germany. And and this is what he said. He said, no. He goes, I'm a comedy. I'm a 
lighthearted guy, happy guy, family guy. I'm not going to be do a serious war movie or war TV show. And they go, it's not. It's a comedy. He's like, what's funny about Nazi Germany? Right. That the modern equivalent is us being like, Todd, I have a comedy for you to star in. It's about Guantanamo Bay. We're going. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. He agreed to do it for what? For the money and the fame, right? Right. TV Guide reviled it. They said it was the worst sitcom ever. (laughs) And that shows how much they know because it ended up being a monster hit. It was syndicated. It was on cable television for years. I was going to say, like it... It wasn't number one, not not by far, but it was like number seven, number ten. Like it was, it was in like the top ten for several of the years it was airing. And reruns, it's run continuously for the last fifty years. You you said you watched an episode last week. Oh yeah, I, it's easy to find. Um, I I remember seeing it come up. I think at Nick at Night when I was a kid, and then you you can find episodes just on like YouTube and some of the streaming platforms. I found this, and I found this to be very. Um, I just thought this was great. It talked. He's talking about some of his actors who worked with him on Hogan's Heroes, and there was a guy named Louis Lebeau, and he was a prince, French prisoner of war on the show. That was his, and he said that working with Bob Crane was Bob never acted like he was better than you. He never acted like I make more money than you. He was always listening. He was always acting like he was just one of the guys that he was absolutely just wonderful to work with. That is awesome. Especially coming from Hollywood. Like, he he wasn't pulled into the show. He started out in a form of entertainment. So being that, that humble and nice is incredible. There started some signs early in his Hogan's Hero career. He, he was married to his high school sweetheart who he met when he was 17. He got married when he was 18. So he was a very married man his whole life when he was all doing all this sexual depravity we're going to talk about. Okay. I've got a weird question. Um, do you think that that is part of addiction? Is like finding a partner early that will like not mask, but present that, you know, wholesome en- side. Enabler. Yeah. I think every addict looks for a good enabler um, partner without even subconsciously, not even knowing it. Okay. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. I, I think that I have seen people who are recovering find partners that are unrelated to their past life that will drag them back in. So I, I totally believe that. There were signs that he had an unhealthy relationship with women. He would have affairs with one um, leading actress after another. So he was the star of the show, and he used that to be in a relationship, even though he was married, very married. He also used to have his locker room where, or his dressing room where he would get ready full of naked pictures of women that he had taken. <laughs> Which seems outrageously inappropriate by today's standards by our me too standards now to say hey look at, oh. look at look at this one i hooked up with in florida and these were homemade things these weren't like pinups of playgirl or something these were his own naked with some chick in denver <laughs> that is so weird like uh, okay there's there's the stereotype of like the changing room or men's locker room having like 
a nudie calendar hanging on the wall, just a single, you know, fetish image or whatever. But that is, if you were another actor walking by that and you peeked in, you're like, you're like, hey, Bob, uh, we're about to uh, get ready on set. And then you just see that and freeze in your tracks and you're like, okay, well, I'm going to go the other way. Like that's the, the booth of porn. That is odd. I mean, he had an appetite for this. He did this. He indulged in this addiction his whole life for years, day after day. Um, his second wife was well aware of what he does after when he's not with her. And they ask him, how can you how can you stay with a man? How can you love a man who treats women this bad? And she said, I'm not the one being used. These women are. This is a direct quote. Um, Bob said, I wish when I was finished I could just push a button and it'd fall through the floor and disappear. Which is a horrible way to talk about <laughs> That is some, <laughs> and his wife said, "Well, how can I be jealous of that?" Or something like that. He treated women the way the world treats toilet paper. And who's going to be jealous of toilet paper? That is okay. That is also part of the quote. Just, just for the record, we're going to just say outright that not too many addicts wish they had a trap door in the floor to uh, get rid of other people. Uh, that is. <laughs> I mean, I know that he's a comedian and that that is a total joke. Um, but I, I think the the stigma of an addict having morals degraded is is very prevalent. The idea that like somebody will pick their addiction over morals or over other people is kind of brought up a lot. Is there is there a social class to addictions? I absolutely believe that. Yes. My my grandfather who died of alcoholism. Was he talked down about drug addicts like they were just a big piece of shit ever? You know? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I never understood that. I'm like, isn't that the same thing you're doing? It's weird because it is like kind of dependent on the tides of what is popular, what is legal, what the government says is okay. Like, okay, we're in Oregon here where um, marijuana has been legalized. People from outside states who will drink just amounts of liquor that I now know is killing them will come over and thumb their nose at all of these hippies smoking marijuana all across Oregon. And it has drastically lowered our rates of hospitalization from, you know, heroin and fentanyl and other addictions. So, I mean, there is absolutely a a class system within addiction and I think about people with a sex addiction would say, well, it's because I'm desirable or, you know, I'm just a healthy, blue-blooded, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you could do it, you would kind of thing. Or the person who spends hours a day on porn websites will look down at people who will go to, you know, do something very dramatic and, and gross, like go to a porn theater or expose themselves in public or, or cheat. But really, it's kind of the same ballpark. It's the same addiction. Um, I ran into a guy, okay, uh, um, I've been to addiction meetings. I ran into a guy who said he was running a loading facility. So like it was, it was shipping and receiving basically. And he said that when he was in the midst of his addiction, um, he was, he, he drank. He said, if they knew what I was capable of, you know, that younger me would have had this place in rubble. They'd never trust me. And he was a manager. Now, ironically, like like almost in the same breath, that same person said he won't hire addicts. 
<laughs> because he knows him too well. I think, yeah, I think that was what he was getting at. Um, but he himself said that, like, even though he is a functioning addict and he is considers himself to be responsible and somebody you can trust, he wouldn't trust one, even if they were, like, recovering. I think every addiction has a, a, a time where it is. They're functional. Yeah. They actually excel. And so a lot of times their life can be getting better so they can associate it with, hey, I can handle this and this is never going to be a problem. And then it does always go to shit, though, without <laughs> 100% <laughs> of the time. <laughs> yeah, there is a brief period of time where um, opium addicts are stealing money. There's a time where, you know, the, the classic in America is cocaine addicts, you know, taking cash from like grandma's purse. Um but I, I think that is such a small window. It's over publicized. It's like what we talk about with the news where like we've seen enough of that to where it is branded all addicts is untrustworthy. You know, we don't class like put them in different classes. They do it. So like we don't recognize that there is a very slim amount of addicts that you can't trust with, you know, money or a job. But the rest generally like pushing them out of jobs or not trusting them is going to cost them their, well, we'll, we'll get into this definitely in part three, but like, um, alienating them might cost them their return to society. Um, we did an episode recently, uh, about the Reddit, am I the asshole? And in that episode, we talked about, um, actor observer asymmetry which is basically, if I'm a jerk, it's because of circumstances today. If someone else is a jerk, it's because they're a jerk to the fabric of their being. <laughs> um, I view this this outlook, the stigma of addiction, very similarly. If I'm an addiction, it's faulty wiring, and I can overcome it eventually. I'm the Tony Stark of addiction. It's It's not so bad. If they're an addict, it's because they're weak and they didn't just say no like Dare taught us. I do want to asterisk this, for, and I'll speak for Joe and I. When we're talking about they, Joe and I are both multiple addicts and different things. <laughs> <laughs> so we've done all these things as judging. and <laughs> yes, That's why we know so much about it. <laughs> that's not a hypothetical voice I speak from. That's how I used to think. <laughs> <laughs> we like to put people in boxes. It's the only way we, we can get through live. Right. So I kind of want to talk about um, a couple of studies. Okay, so this comes from uh, Public Health. Uh, we're going to definitely link off to this article because it, it kind of illustrates how we actually see addiction. Um, we can say all day that we want people to succeed and that we want people to recover and we want to treat it like a mental illness. Um, but this was published and it, it went over a sample study of 709 participants and they asked them about their, um, their attitudes toward addiction and, you know, mental illness. Not only did this study find that people had more negative opinions about those with drug addiction than mental illness. The research also found that people would oppose policies that would help drug addicts in their recovery. Have you seen like weird Southern um, policies come out that are anti-addict where they like, I, I watched a Ted talk we're going to talk about where like he mentions taking women who had been addicts and done something heinous 
putting shirts on them that say I was an addict and making them do public services like building coffins or digging ditches and like publicly shaming them. See, you know, that's interesting. And just before you were talking about that, I'm thinking that this probably the sex addiction is the least visible of addictions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know some people have had them. I, I was very involved in a church and, and I remember they said that one in five males in the church has a serious pornography addiction. And I remember looking around and feeling like I need to jump up and defend myself and say, hey, I'm not one of them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but if you think about that and and then the collateral damage in the marriage and, you know, with the alcohol, the gambling up all night, you can see it on their face and smell it, but you can't see it. It's the sex stuff. Right. I mean, there's we're going to cover a lot of different addictions in this episode. Most of them, I'd say about half of them are invisible or they're looked at as so common, we don't care about them. Phone addiction, caffeine addiction, addiction to sugar. I mean, there's there's addictions that hit the dopamine spot just as hard as hard drugs do. But on that whole T-shirt thing with the TED Talks, I guarantee the person who wrote that, the, the people that wrote that, the people delivering that speech, each of them has something that they should that they should line up and be in the addiction line as well. Right, exactly. Yeah, we... We want to shame people into stopping their addiction when in reality that is the worst thing to do. Um, so we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Um, to this study, they say that, um, uh, you know, the guy I met um, at an addiction program, he was not an outlier. Only about one in five people said during the study they would work closely on a job with somebody who's addicted compared to 60% of people who said they'd work with someone with mental illness. So like you mentioned one in five guys, you know, according to your church, um, has a porn addiction. So like only those one in five people are willing to work with other addicts. Like the 20% of people willing to work with somebody who's addicted. What I'm going to, what are these self-righteous assholes? The rest of them. Right. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to be a splash of cold water here. Everybody who responded to that is probably addicted to something. Like, we're going to go through this on the show. Yeah, when I stood up at church and said, I'm not addicted to porn, someone should have stood up and said, yeah, but he's a drug addict and he's an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) You Uh, know, put me back in my place. The public view on different addictions, that there's good addictions and bad addictions, all that nonsense. That is actually what's holding us back from calling each other out on this. Um, 43% were opposed to giving individual addicts, um, basically the equivalent of health insurance, um, or to giving health insurance to people at large when it, you know, lumped addicts in with the insurance. Um, so I mean, like we literally want to stop taking care of addicts, um, which is crazy. Like, like everything we're going to talk about as far as public opinion goes is complete insanity. We... Uh, I'm going to say it, just my opinion. We don't see addicts as people when they are in the midst of their addiction. Like, I've heard writers talk about how, you know, movies about zombies are actually about addiction. I get that. That makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. And and the final one in here, the final nail in this coffin for this research, uh, respondents agreed on one question. Roughly three in ten people believe that recovery from a mental illness or drug addiction is impossible. So there's a lot of people who don't even think that you can come back from an addiction. 
They're just going to write you off like a leper. Right. So that is kind of our first way that the creative mind gets enslaved by addiction. It's actually probably like our third way we've covered already. Um, we make up reasons not to care for each other. We, we create characters or caricatures of that person. Even if we were that person in the past, we will come up with reasons not to trust you. Um, you know, we, we won't advocate to let you use heavy machinery or do our grunt jobs or do any job, really. Uh, instead, we're advocating that we put everyone on the same moral scale as ourselves. And like we mentioned, I mean, okay, let's talk food addiction for just a second. Food is engineered to be addictive. Um, I think of that. When I was 50 pounds heavier than I am today, I used to go to 7-Eleven and get the biggest big gulp I could get. And then I'd get all these Reese's peanut butter cups. I used to just slam them down in minutes. And then a friend explained to me, it's that food dopamine, that sugar. Right. Because I'm like, how could... I was disgusted by myself. I was disgusted by how fat I was. I was disgusted by the way I was eating. I mean, I was going to eat the goddamn wrapper on those things. And yeah. he says you get a rush from those peanut butter cups and that soda. And we, especially online, we fat shame just as hard as we shame addicts. Like, we, we really treat all types of addiction with the same level of contempt and shame. I think mostly because we're afraid it could happen to us or we don't want to think about our own addiction, which, again, I guarantee we have one. Um, all drugs utilize the same part of the brain. You mentioned the dopamine. Food it, built to stimulate you will hyper-satisfy receptors that are already there. These are the receptors that other things that key off dopamine will hit. Taste buds that would love to get a taste of real honey... Uh, back in the caveman period, now get your Slurpee or a McFlurry every other day. Th there's, a, there's a fun fact about food engineering. Every piece of food is engineered. The, the potato chip, when it cracks, when you chomp into a potato chip. The sound. Yeah, the, the fracture of the chip emulates and goes faster than the fracture of fresh vegetables. So it actually tricks your brain into thinking that like you're chomping into something that is you know, delicious, just for just the very first start of tasting a potato chip, just the crunch is designed to make your brain be like, oh, this is nice to hook you. Yeah, to hook you. Um, yeah, I, I remember one of my friends used to um, download coupons for Arby's and he would eat like four to eight Arby sandwiches a day because he was so good at like gaming the coupon system. You want to talk about, you know, being creative in your addiction. I mean, I definitely have gone to great lengths to like, you know, uh, what is the deal of the day for certain you know drinks that I want? You know, I, I could get this type of scotch or this type of whiskey, but, you know, why don't I get the, the lower end stuff? Because it's, you know, two bottles for the same price. So, yeah, we it, food addiction. I can't tell you how many people I know at the office will have these elaborate rituals to get exactly the right combination of food for their lunch. Here's kind of the mind bender. Have you ever heard of the idea that addiction is a learned behavior, that it's not fully hardwired from the start? I think that. I think of people, you know, it's hard to say, people who are raised in one of those families, if how much of it's genetic and how much of it is exposure to alcohol and drugs. When you were satisfying an addiction of some sort, 
did you did you have a ritual like a daily ritual around it oh absolutely um with drugs it was the going and getting it the setting it up the (laughs) that was exciting okay to know who to call and where to meet them and then the apprehension about getting them and and with alcohol was like that too it's like i'm off at this time i'm gonna go straight to the liquor store and then i'm gonna go and you know whether i'm watching a game whether i'm at a bar there was always a so it would be the perfect experience i guess is the best way to put it that is yes that phrasing it's going to be the perfect experience that is a great way to say it um there's a professor mark lewis and he's in the netherlands he talks about deep learning and the idea is the longer a time you spend in your addictive state the more cues you attach to your drug or drink of choice triggers yeah triggers cues i mean like he, he literally uses like um you know he uses the phrase triggers a lot in his, you know, his article. And one of the things I realized while reading this is, um, for me, uh, being in an addictive state would be very different. Like if you say you're a social drinker and you go to the bar and you, you drink, you only do it at, you know, um, you know, tip off or something, you sit around other guys, you all have a beer and you watch at the same time. That feels like a social activity, but I guarantee those are all sort of like you mapping out your addiction, letting your brain get used to those cues. You won't be able to see a game the same way without having those cues get triggered from now on. For me, it was, um, you know, uh, drinking and like, I would, I would read and then I would play video games and I would just sort of like space out. So it's like the triggers can be very, very commonplace, but you're designing the perfect experience for yourself. Whatever comforts you ends up being the way you sort of build your addiction. Um, they now, become very powerful, though. You know, they sound very simple. But then over time, I remember at times when I would drive down certain streets where I lived and they would grab a hold of me i'd have to drop everything i'm doing and go do what i had to do (laughs) yeah okay so um in drug abuse programs they talk about uh geographical cues like you being in a certain space and time will do it so it, it goes from it's about the substance to it's about the place you're in and the things you're doing while using that substance and for Bob Crane, I mean, like, it seems like he brought it with him. So, like, you know, Bob Crane is is starts out with a sex addiction where he's just having sex with random people. Then it's carrying pornography everywhere. Then it's plastering that, you know, pornography that he has taken pictures of in his own dressing room. Like, he is, I mean, he's a model candidate for this, you know, um, deep learning system. As he dove deeper into, and and this is not just specific to Bob Crane, but as he got deeper into his addiction, it became uglier. Yeah. And he became less aware of how dirty it was and how inappropriate it was. He kind of thought that it was just fun, natural, everybody has sex, it should be cool. He started to overshare his his very, uh, I don't know what what kind of lifestyle you call that, alternative lifestyle or what. Well, that's... Don't you find that that's similar to a lot of addictions? Like the more uh, socially acceptable it is, the more everyone is just like, well, I everyone does it. Everyone has a drink after work. 
everybody eats a burger once in a while. Everybody, you know, smokes at breaks. And then suddenly you're the person who's doing it nonstop to where people are finding it offensive. Um, and most of this, by the way, according to, um, you know, this sort of deep learning idea, almost all of these are, can be triggered by stress or alienation. So the idea that, like, the longer you spend in your addictive state, the more cues you attach to your drug or drink or visual of choice, and you're going to turn on that dopamine system. You're going to seek those triggers when you're stressed or alienated. Now, the alienation part is very, very important. <laughs> um, there is a theme we are already hitting, which is creative people become addicted and then we isolate them and they stay addicted. So just keep that in mind as we go on through this podcast. Um, th this also applies to positive things, the idea of deep learning, by the way. Um, it applies to making money. Uh, I'm going to quote from his article here. He says, quote, There have been studies showing that people making high-powered decisions in business and politics also have the very same high levels of dopamine, um, specifically dopamine metabolism in the striatum because they're in a constant state of goal pursuit. So Bob Crane chasing the next conquest, the next woman he's going to um, put through his metaphorical hatch in the floor, he's activating the same dopamine metabolism in the striatum, the same mechanism as when he is kicking ass in his radio show or getting that new deal for Hogan's Heroes or making these big professional moves. Um, he says, quote, most people who become addicted are experiencing some kind of loneliness, depression, or alienation. So I'm betting Bob Crane felt pretty lonely sometimes and that his public face was covering up a few things. You know, I hate sympathizing with rich, famous people. You know, that's not really my strong suit, but <laughs> I can't imagine performing at that level for that many years would be exhausting and yeah. stressful. You know, and there's a certain, you know, to keep famous is harder than getting famous, I'm pretty sure, right? So he was hustling, hustling. So this was a way that to blow off steam and then got way out of hand. So I don't want to be guilty of yada yadaing over all of Bob Crane's career, but I was hoping we could sort of skip the years on Hogan's Heroes. I mean, because because we know that he was making inappropriate passes at women at work and dating starlets and and using his position to have sex with you know women who were guest starring and things. Um, but can we get to the part where his addiction started to spiral? Because that's kind of what we're interested is today. He's having problems in his life. Um, and I think it's important to remember that he was very famous and he was very loved and he was a good looking, charismatic entertainer. So he had lots of attraction from everybody. Yeah. A lot of people were attracted to him. So he had a lot of, what'd you call that? <laughs> a lot of temptation. More that, than most. A lot of opportunity. Yeah, that makes opportunity, sense. Okay. <laughs> opportunity, that sounds like a <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like you might be a player for that if we get groupies for the the re engineered Jew. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, hey, I've got some opportunities backstage. <laughs> um his life, so he had his radio show. This is the big this was the big chunks of his career. He had the radio show where he was a huge hit in LA, second biggest station. They had Hogan's Heroes, which was a monster sitcom. 
did a couple movies, and then he did a lot of dinner theater. And that's when his really his depravities hit, hit its. That's when he really, when he was doing his Hogan's Heroes thing at night, he used to play the drums in just like local nightclubs, and he'd meet women there. But when things really started to go downhill was when he found his buddy, his partner in all this, who was a video camera in the pioneer days of video cameras, John Carpenter. And how he met John, John was a kind of a Hollywood big shot. He would go to a lot of stars' houses and help them put VCRs in. Okay. So I'm guessing back then they were as big as this table that we're talking on right now. <laughs> so a guy who's addicted to videotaping porn finds somebody who is an expert at it. <laughs> he didn't even know what that was. He didn't know how to videotape. He knew how to make movies because he's been in, the, in TV and stuff. This guy's showing him home movies. And so he came over and set stuff up for him. He was like, he'd do an audio for him. And then they became fast friends and they started hanging out. And then so they'd go out as kind of as a team and Bob would use his fame to meet some young ladies and then they would go back to their place and videotape this orgy. And this wasn't a once or twice thing. This was a daily thing they did. Oh, wow. Okay. They did all over the country and all over the world. So that's finding a mating between technology and addiction and then taking it on tour. That is crazy. How, how do you, what do you call a friendship like that? How do you label a friendship like that? Your Enabling. Buddy. <laughs> that's like an addict. That's like a drunk making friends with a moonshiner. Like that's. Exactly. That's well put. Um, so his life was kind of headed downhill. Bob suck did seek out help for his addiction at one point of his career. His life was spiraling out of control. He lost a marriage. Um, he had kids. And so he tried to get some help, but it, it, it didn't stick. Okay. And weirdly enough, when I was reading through this, um, his psychologist, whoever was, was working with him, actually did label him correctly. He did get the diagnosis of sex addiction before it was an actual diagnosis. So I think that's impressive that they were on the money and he knew about what was going on. Bob Crane wasn't blind to his own addiction. Um, he was just very creative about hiding it and getting it. Seems like that would be a hard one to stop. Yeah. You know. I, the the one that I always think about is, is Tiger Woods, and I'm sure there's lots of sex addictions we don't know about, but that was one that would. When you start hearing the feared numbers of it, you almost you think, oh yeah, yeah, but you, you think who would have time or energy for that? That takes to your mind to be a little broken to want to have sex that much, right? Well, that's that's where we get into the classification of addiction, like we we prefer to label somebody as a cheater and just sort of like write them off as, oh, you're a cheater, which means you're an asshole. You're a bastard. Yeah, scumbag. Yeah, when when one of those scumbags says, hold on, I'm a sex addict. I've been diagnosed. We laugh at that. Like I've seen people in the mainstream media be like, oh, they're pulling that card. Yeah. <laughs> or the, you always see that joke in all the comedy movies where the at, at the addiction meetings they're all having sex out in the bushes after the meeting. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't taken as seriously as drugs and alcohol. No, no, it's not. I mean, maybe after reading Bob Crane, people might take it more seriously because it, 
I mean, lethal consequences in this case. How much is this, of this is having a lot of money and a lot of time? Time, money, and fame. Like, he had all the tools to be able to maximize uh, this addiction, especially in this era. Speaking of eras where an addiction can be at its prime, can we talk just a tiny bit about phone addiction? Talking about phone sex? Or phone, <laughs> like addicted to your phone? Just addicted to your phone. Um, I mean... Yeah, I guess if you have a phone addiction and you're a sex addict or or porn addict, then the two definitely intersect. Um, But just the part where um, every app on your phone is designed like the potato chip, the the crunch of the potato chip. Every app on your phone is designed to hit those dopamine spots. I totally get that. I see these parents at dinner at restaurants screaming at their kid to put their phone away. And then you see the parents hunched over staring at their phone as they're screaming at their kid. There is um, there's a Google product manager who quit and has now become kind of infamous. Like he, he now sort of runs the anti-app, anti-phone revolution. And he talks about how every meeting that they had was about the dopamine effect. It was about, you know... Um, how to design literally the most addictive system they can. That's crazy. They're talking about it out loud and not in the back room with a psychiatrist. Yeah, they they talk about it as if they are engineering a slot machine. And they they really have. Like when when we open this episode, we we talk about the bells, the chimes, the dings, the sound of, you know, slot machine coins coming out of a machine. They they literally have used every sound they can, every cue they can, to get us to pay attention to our phones for a little bit longer. Um, now, you can watch his videos and his talks online. We're going to link to a few. But Tristan Harris says, to form a habit when someone pulls a lever, sometimes they get a reward. Not all the time, sometimes. Uh, he says there's a whole playbook of techniques to get you to keep using these products as much as possible, and they're shaping the thoughts and actions of people. Now, I kind of didn't believe that when I first heard it. Like, I was like, okay, well, they made a useful tool. You know, it's got some interesting bings and sound effects, but I'm not governed by this. That was until he started talking about how to unaddict yourself from the phone. That's when I started realizing how many of these things are built to give you dopamine. So can I give you a couple of examples of how your phone, Todd, might be um, purposely addicting you? Please. Okay. When you are on Twitter or Instagram or Reddit and you get a notice that somebody has messaged you, did you know that the more clever programmers will bunch them together instead of sending you all the notices at once. No, I did not know that. So, for a while, Instagram experimented with giving you bursts of messages instead of releasing them naturally, like when you would get a notification normally. What's more effective? The bursts. So the the burst messages, getting two, three, four messages... Even if some of them aren't from people, they getting them in a grouping like that will give you a bigger hit of dopamine 
it makes you feel famous. Like, oh my God, you guys yeah. are just too much. No, no pictures, please. I just, <laughs> I know how that feels. Yeah. So, so I, I was getting car accidents sometimes checking a, a message from a bot. <laughs> right. Okay. You said an important thing there. Um, so having a couple of those be from real people and a couple of those be from the service is important. So, um, they got to beef it up. Yeah, exactly. They, they beef it up. They keep you connected longer. If you have a gap where you stop using your phone, a lot of services have learned that if they send you uh, a Google timeline to show you what you were doing this time last year or an update from the service or a message saying, you know, reminding you of things you'd watched or, or you know, just these little quote unquote services where they remind you to use the app some more they come in bursts with your other messages or they come in the gap times when you haven't been using for a while. It, it, it is literally like seeing an advertisement for Smirnoff vodka passing on the bus. It, it is crazy, but um, one of the things you can unaddict yourself is to pay attention to that. Well, one thing, Joe and I are both creative souls, and I, I don't know about you, but I'll speak for me, that when you post something creative that you've worked on with a team or with yourself, what reaction you get online makes a huge difference on how you feel about it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> and you think that we'd be past that, but no, it still, it validates it or it discredits it, right? I joke with writing collaborators online that I'm not here to write a good story. I'm here for the dopamine. I've used that phrase for fun. Joe's um, such a jackass too. On the way over here, we're having our, our meeting for our pre meeting recorded before we do our show and he was bragging about 400,000 people reading his <laughs> reddit things <laughs> and I rolled my eyes but I, he just kept on going and talking about it so <laughs> well I have to let you know I that that's obviously I've turned off a lot of my phone notifications I have to get that validation somewhere from so it's it's from Todd to unhook yourself from phone addiction it's it's actually quite simple um Turn off non-human suggestions, links, and updates on all of your apps if you can. Some, most of them actually do have an option to say, don't message me unless it's a real person. You'll be shocked at how often that thing does not ring anymore. Um, grayscale your screen if you can. Now, that may sound very boring, making your phone into a black and white TV. But the reason why is... All pending notification windows have a little red bubble or check on it for a reason. Your eye prioritizes looking at that app above all others. So if you see that little red bubble, you will click on it, especially if it has a number in that bubble, like a white one or two or three in that red bubble. You will, your finger will draw to it. Restrict your home screen to everyday tools that are necessary like Lyft, Calendar, Calculator, nothing that has a entertainment scroll or an autoplay or an infinite scroll because those are just uh, addictive time sinks. Throughout this episode, we've talked about, um, or I have hinted at the idea that um, addiction might be made worse by isolating addicts, by shaming them and, and putting t-shirts on them that say addict and making them do public services um, or choosing not to work with them. The, the guy I met who would not hire a recovering addict, even though he was one, 
um, when I mentioned that we would prefer not to have them get medical benefits. All these things that we are willing to vote into place to shame, isolate, and restrict addicts um, basically is the, it's having the opposite effect. I'm going to, well, I'm going to link to, um, it's, it's a Ted talks, uh, by Johan Harry and his Ted talk is called everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. And I went and I chased down a bunch of his sources cause I wanted to make sure that this wasn't all just hokum, that he wasn't just a feel good hippie espousing how we should embrace, you know, addicts with a hug. Idolistic BS. Right. In his Ted talk, he references a famous study and it was called the rat park study. Have you ever heard of the Rat Park or um, Rat Haven? Rat Park, Rat Haven, no. Okay. And this is, when I say famous, it was done in the 70s, and it has been upheld in every article or every talk I've heard where someone mentions, hey, why do we keep trying to isolate addicts? The idea was um, we used to study cocaine addiction by putting it in water in rat tanks. We've even talked about this on our show. Yeah, I have heard that study before. Okay. So years and years and years, um, scientists are testing addictive substances by putting them in water in rat tanks and saying, oh, look, cocaine is 100% addictive. Alcohol is 70% addictive. Um, You know, MDMA is 30%, whatever the numbers are. I'm throwing those out there. And eventually the rats pick cocaine over food. They always do, yeah. Yeah. Um, most addictive substances, the rats will pick it over food or regular water, and then it will die of overdose at some point. But a scientist came in and was like, hey, what if we put them in, you know, they, they have nothing to do. Those rats live in a tank like, you know, like poor people live in their apartment. There's nothing there. It's blank on the walls. They don't have social connections. There's literally nothing to do except to escape their environment by doing that drug. This sounds a lot to me like rural America and methamphetamines. I am glad you went there because that's where my mind went to. So they designed an experiment where they put in toys and a good rat environment, a variety of foods. They put in other rats to socialize with. They made sure they had social bonds. They they gave them things to do and an environment that wasn't dismal and depressing. And the rats, wouldn't you know, hardly ever got addicted when they had those connections. When they were not mentally trying to escape their environment, they were actually not just far less likely. It was almost unheard of that the rats would die from the you know the cocaine-laced water. Or that they would become addicted in the first place. This is very similar to how AA works. AA has a system that they don't tell you. But what it is set up to is you take all your friends from the bar and you make new relationships with people who don't drink. Yes. So you just scramble your relationship and then you get super busy. In AA they have activity every day of the week, every day of the year. And the reason for that is what you're just talking about. Is to get you so busy you don't think about drugs or drinking anymore. Right. You make connections that need you to be there and to be present and to not be checked out. Um, If you take someone who is an addict, you make them more poor by stigmatizing what they do. You you remove the jobs they can get because most people don't want to hire an addict. 
You make sure they don't have money by putting on their record that they are a felon. You you make sure that they never get above a certain level of income or apartment because you put these things on their record. You isolate them. You put in a system that will um, arrest them if they get caught with their drug again, so they literally have to be hiding it. What you're basically doing, and, and he says this in his talk, uh, Johan Harry, he says, if you wanted to design a system that kills addicts or make sure they never recover, we've done it. This, that's what America is right now. It, to your point, the wealthy friends that I know who are also addicts, they have judgmental families and overbearing spouses and they're, they have work. They have so many projects on their hands, they can't possibly succumb to that addiction. They got too much to do to die. Right. Exactly. <laughs> God, I'd love to just check out, but I got to get this done. Right. Uh, um, and uh, obviously phone addictions like Facebook and Twitter, those do not count as real bonds. Those will not get you out of the blank rat cage. You You need to be interacting with real people to satisfy that. I've been on both sides of the fence with this. What this sounds to me, Joe, you're talking about, and it makes perfect sense, is that tough love doesn't work all the time. And and I have noticed that people who come from families, let's say they're trust fund kids and stuff, they always seem to recover for 99% of the time. Yes. Because the family keeps bailing them out, and they get enough bails out. And then I've seen the, the other side where there are no resources, and the people do end up on the streets way more often. Yeah. We... You even use the term I use, which is the the rich kids get bailed out. The way we could look at it is they had the resources to do something else so they didn't hate their environment. They had social connections. They had enough things to drag them back to, to distract them, that they didn't need to stay in that system where they're escaping an environment. Mentally, by doing the drug, I mean. It's hard, though. You have to be able to afford to have fun, too distractions cost money <laughs> they do they absolutely do um uh johan ends his ted talk with an amazing phrase he says the opposite of addiction is not sobriety the opposite of addiction is connection ah, i love that imagine if bob crane had been taken aside and taken away from his buddy john carpenter the the photographer slash video expert what if this had ended differently? What if he had had those connections in that moment? Bob Crane manipulated, used people based on his movie star good looks and his stellar reputation. So to me, this is what happened. And this is what how he met his end. Him and his friend John Carpenter did this um, bait and switch thing for years where they'd go out and pick up women and videotape of them. They, the women weren't always known that they were being videotaped either. That's another thing. Um, and the way he was found, he was found in Scottsdale in an apartment in a very nice area. There was no forced entry. There was blood coming out of there. There was a violent, violent death. He was beat to death with a tripod of a camera which is what John Carpenter's specialty was, which he has been handling for 40 years of his life. Right. So it'd be like a baseball player killing you with a baseball bat. It's so wild and gross and weird. And then he put it, ties things on it and he strangled them. It's very personal. It wasn't a robbery. So a lot of the theories were that Bob had finally gone to his friend John and say, 
I don't want to do this anymore. And John was like, what do you mean? We're this orgy traveling tour. We can't end it. And he was so mad. He was so hurt that he went back and said, if I can't have you, nobody can. And like, an, I guess you ex-lover, jealous friend, he beat him to death. Now, the crime scene back in the day was contaminated terribly by the police. They did a horrible job, probably because in this area there weren't a lot of murders. Okay. But there was blood coming out of the house. There was bloods on the curtain. There was blood in John Carpenter's car. And years later, there was a chunk of brain from Bob Crane in John Carpenter's car. Wow. Now they tried them and they couldn't prove it. There was no murder weapon. They said it might not have been the camera enough, but God, that's a lot of evidence, Joe. I'm not a detective or anything. I was going to say that is so much. Like that is, yeah. What's a guy got to do to get caught, really? I wonder, just from my own life experience, how much of this sex was consensual. I think they got kinkier and dirtier, and I doubt that it was. Yeah. I think we're dealing with probably a lot worse than Bill Cosby, sexual predator. I know that his son went on record to say that it was always consensual, but looking through the list of like accusations and stuff, it sounds like it got very questionable and very seedy and very criminal. I want to challenge everybody to watch this movie, Autofocus. Um, Joe's teaching me how to write story, you know, to do better storytelling. And this is a very good movie. It follows the timeline. Um, it's well acted in. It does a great job at seeing these value changes in this man who is, you know, playing a, a good guy by day and bad guy at night. And if you want to watch it, I did look it up. You can. <laughs> oh, my God. It's got Greg Kinnear and it's got Willem Dafoe as John Carpenter in case you want to be extra creeped out by the potential murderer. Um, but, yeah, you can you can rent it on like YouTube and Amazon and things like that. It's a good movie. It's a creepy movie. It, you got to take a shower afterwards. You're like, <laughs> I wish for all of us as humans, Joe, we could all just get that one get out of our addiction free card. Would yeah. that be nice? Yes, but late. I would want people to feel what addiction is like before they get out of it. But before it takes them. Exactly. Yeah. Historically, Americans tend to focus on addiction-related deaths only when it's a celebrity. Elvis Presley, Billie Holiday, Michael Jackson, and Heath Ledger. Or if you want to get more recent, DMX, Michael K. Williams, Art Bell, Tom Petty. When it's a celebrity, we say it's tragic. When it's Kenny from the hardware store, then it was his fault for having weak morals. To be blatantly, scientifically, statistically honest, the war on drugs isn't going well. Even calling it a war might be why we're in this mess. Implying that one side can win, that there is an enemy. That lucrative addictions like alcohol or opioids are acceptable for society, but non-lethal drugs like LSD or marijuana make you the enemy. Or that we can fight addiction, like addiction is a soldier charging at us over the trench wall and our only choice is to lock it and its victim behind bars. This attitude as a whole is what drives loved ones deeper into shame and isolation. 
And people are smart. They're creative when it comes to hiding addiction and getting more of it. Study after study has shown that connection, social bonds, acceptance, and a supportive environment aren't just effective at curing addiction. A loving social environment with safety nets makes addiction near impossible to take hold in the first place. Maybe that's how we save the next Bob Crane or Philip Seymour Hoffman. We stop telling them that they're morally weak. We stop trying to give them time at double digits. We stop trying to help them find the bottom faster. Maybe if we stop going to war on addicts, we won't find so many casualties lying face down in their own bloody bed sheets. You've been listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us at www.re-engineeredyou.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. (laughs) 